0: Northern Illinois Food Bank today serving for Chapel Street Church. And we're having a great time. We are packing orders for the food pantry. We got tons of stuff. I don't know. It is so much fun. So I've been serving at Buddy Break for a decent amount of time, and it's always just like the best part of my weekend. Every Saturday when it happens, you know, 10 to 1, you see all those smiling faces, all the kids running around, and it it just means so much to me, let alone the kids and the families. And it's a great way to serve, but also, like, I love this environment, so it's really important for me to be here with the kids. Serving helps to, to not only help out others but also it's a way to, to fulfill some of the needs that we all have. Just giving back and bringing a smile and bringing some love to people that, that might need it at certain times. Of life. So we're in the community as a church because we as believers are called to love the people around us and one of the ways that we can do that is to serve the people around us and like do things that we're doing here today. We're like, hey we're standing picnic tables or like, hey we're cleaning up your art rooms, stuff like that. So we're here at uh, Schneider Elementary School, one of our closest neighbors, actually right across from our North Aurora campus. Uh, And we're spending some time just painting some classrooms, doing some tidy work for them just to bless the staff as they head into the new school year. Well, it's been a great month of serving all across all four of our campuses, all kinds of different things going on. I know many of you are involved in that, and so I just want to say thank you uh, for continuing to help us as a community of faith be the kind of people that really embody what it means to love our neighbors well. You know, we don't always get it right, uh, but it's so great to know that God's at work in us and through us uh, and that our neighbors can be blessed. So thank you so much for, for serving in the ways that you did. Uh, Well, Janine and I just got back from a little bit of a vacation this week. Uh, We travelled down to Florida to see actually some of my family that had come over to do the Disney World thing and we thought, let's go spend some time with them for a few days before. Uh, And it's always kind of a new experience for us because we still haven't travelled on aeroplanes that frequently with our young kids. Uh, So if you don't know us, we've got four kids now ranging from seven all the way down to one. Uh, and I, I never failed to be reminded of how different our lives are now that we have kids. Uh, there's, a, there's a picture here I wanted to share with you. This was taken September 2014 when we found out we were pregnant with our first little one, Jonathan. Uh, of course, we've got the British and American flag there. Look at the excitement in those faces. Here's a picture of what happened after they arrived. <laughs> our lives were completely upended, changed, transformed by having kids. If, if you've got kids, you know what I mean. There's all these dreams, the excitement you have, and when they show up, you realize things will never be the same. Flying on airplanes is the least of your problems. There's all kinds of things that change when a kid comes along. Yeah, because there's a few things in our life like this, isn't there, that, that kind of radically reorganize the way that we live our lives, the way we think about ourselves, the way that we spend our time. And for us, when we had a baby, it changed our expectations. It challenged us in areas where we realized we weren't as wise and clever as we thought we were. It made us think about our own weaknesses. It challenged us. It tested us, not only just as people and as parents, but as people of faith, what we thought about God and how we trusted Him. But nothing in our lives will challenge us and reorganize us the way that faith does. You know, this whole series that we're looking in Hebrews 11, it's about the way in which faith transforms the lives of those who pursue God. True faith will reorganize your priorities and redefine your treasures. That's what we're going to see this morning. It will radically reorganize your priorities and redefine your treasures. Up first verse in Hebrews 11, we start this whole series looking at It, it says this, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And if in Christ we have assurance of things that we hope for, if in Christ we have the conviction of the things that we don't see, then that's going to change everything about us. It's going to change the way that we look at other people. It's going to change the way that we look at ourselves. Radically reorganize our priorities and redefine our treasures. Now, today we're coming to was undoubtedly one of the most important and significant figures in all of Scripture, Moses. And as we keep reading through this hall of faith in Hebrews 11, we come to this man who probably a lot of us, no matter what our involvement in church and learning about the Bible has been, we've heard this name, or we've at least seen a movie by Charlton Heston with uh, Moses in it. And it's fitting that Moses plays such an important role because if you remember this letter that we read, Hebrews, it's, le- it's written to a group of believers who are struggling with their faith. It's in the New Testament, it's after Jesus has died and resurrected and ascended into heaven, and people are kind of starting to doubt, is this worth it? They're being persecuted, they're struggling, and they're asking themselves, is this worth it? Should we go back to what we had before? Now, what was it that they had before? Well, a lot of the believers at that time were Jewish converts, which means what they had before was the law of Moses. This written code of religion that Moses had encoded for them That it had written down for them passed on by God And so their whole lives were built around this figure Moses Who represented to them everything that faith should be And so what does the author of Hebrews do? He, he takes Moses and he says this figure this, this one that you admire and this one whose faith you chase after He knew something, he pursued something in Christ And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today But to to really understand this, we need to play a little bit of a catch-up from where we left off last week talking about Joseph because the life of God's people has changed dramatically over the course of the 400 years between Joseph and Moses. Here's how things pick up at the beginning of the book of Exodus. In Exodus 1, 8 through 10, we're told that a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So what happened is that Joseph's brothers, his family, settles in Egypt. And they multiply and they grow as a people in incredible numbers. And the pharaohs that come after Joseph, they notice this. And it makes them nervous. Because they start to think, well, this group of people, this tribe of people, it's so large. What if what happens if they turn against us? What happens if they decide to overthrow us? And so they become enslaved and oppressed and mistreated by the pharaohs. And this is actually something that God had warned Abraham about hundreds of years before. In Genesis 15, he, the Lord says to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And here's why I mention that, because despite how it seems for the Hebrew people who are under the oppression of Pharaoh, it's very clear from scripture that the plan, the promise of God is unfolding exactly how he told them it would. And how important a message is that for New Testament believers who are struggling and wondering whether Christ is worth it, if, have things gone wrong? The message of Moses is no, they haven't. Even when things seem dark and broken, God's promise is still true. He's still in control. But things get worse King of Egypt eventually decides That the best way to deal with the Hebrew people Is to launch a genocidal campaign Against Hebrew boys And so he gives the command That all Hebrew boys Once they're born If if it's seen that a Hebrew child is a boy They should be killed immediately And any one of those escaped He tried to deal with By calling the, the guards And the people of Egypt To if they find a Hebrew boy To go and put him in the Nile To drown him and this is unimaginably horrific for the Hebrew people. And those are the circumstances into which Moses is born. That's where his story begins. And this is what we're told in Hebrews about Moses. This is Hebrews eleven twenty-three 23 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused... To be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God Than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth Than the treasures of Egypt For he was looking to the reward Moses was a child born into a community of faith And that was faith that spared his life That protected him and cared for him and faith would go on to become the motivating force that would change him into the man that the Bible holds in such high regard. And so today I want to take a quick look at three effects of faith in the early part of Moses' life. The courage of faith, the choice of faith, and the confidence of faith. Let's look together at the courage of faith. Now, I, I've, I talk about this a lot in my sermons because it never ceases to be a really great example uh, of some biblical values but British people are not the best at conflict and if you've heard me talk about British people I've undoubtedly mentioned this before British people are terrible at conflict and what I mean by that is that generally as a culture as a group of people British people are not good about saying what they really think and feel and I'll give you an example of this if you were in England today and you were in a line at a grocery store And you dropped your credit card on the ground A British person wouldn't plainly say Hey, I think you dropped your credit card on the ground They would say, excuse me I think you might have dropped your credit card on the ground Well, what a bizarre thing to say You absolutely have dropped it But British people, they can't bring themselves to actually say What they really think, what's really in front of them They're overly polite, we've all heard this It's the stereotype of British people the story we read about today is about a group of people who absolutely were not afraid to live out what happened in their head. They were committed to it. They weren't a people who were afraid, they weren't a people who held back, they were a people whose faith motivated them to act. It's the reason that Moses is alive, because at the start of his story, Hebrews eleven twenty three reminds us by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict and this is how exodus puts it in exodus chapter 2 we're told that a man from the house of levi went and took as his wife a levite woman the woman conceived and bore a son and when she saw that he was a fine child she hid him for three months and when she could hide him no longer she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank See, faith gave Moses' mother the courage to act in frightening circumstances. Faith gave her the courage to trust God with what was most precious to her. Moses' parents' faith leads them to protect him at great risk to themselves. This is in the midst of a genocide. Pharaoh has decreed any Hebrew boy is to be put to death. And here is a family hiding their newborn baby. Now, can you imagine what it was like to try and hide a newborn baby for three months? The crying, the different things that would have to be going on in that house. I know when I had babies, it was a busy household. I think everyone in the neighborhood knew there was a baby in our house. So how difficult would it have been for Moses' parents to hide him, knowing that if they were discovered, they would lose their lives, and probably their family would too, for defying Pharaoh. Now we're told something really interesting. We're told that they look at him and they see that he's a fine child. It's kind of an odd phrase, is it? Are we simply being told here that Moses' parents saw him, they thought he was a cute kid, so they decided let's not let this go south. Actually, it's it's a little bit more meaningful than that. This word that is used for fine child when they describe the child as as fine, it's actually a Hebrew word, tov. And tov is the same word that God uses in Genesis 1 when he said that creation was good. So when Moses' parents look at the child, they're not just saying he's a beautiful kid, he's a cute kid. They're saying this is good. There's this intrinsic value and worth in this child's life. He is not expendable. He's not inconvenient. His life is meaningful to God. It's good. And despite the extreme stress that is about to come on their family because of this child's birth, they choose to love him and protect him. This is, by the way, why we as a church endeavour to support efforts to care for the unborn. Because to us, children's life are tov. They are good, they are beautiful, they are of intrinsic worth and value. They matter to God. It's also why we support ministries that care for kids in need, like safe families. Why we say at each of our campuses that kids' ministry is an essential of what we do because we know that the lives of children matter to God. It's why we celebrated a baptism today and had the kids join us and rejoiced together in that as a church family. Now, we might be tempted to say in this situation, well, of course Moses' parents would protect him. He's their son. Parents would do anything for their son. But there's something more going on than that because it's not just Moses' parents. We're told in Exodus 1 that when Pharaoh gave this command, there were Hebrew midwives. And there's two listed in particular, Sifra and Pua. And they protected Hebrew boys. They put their lives on the line. their faith motivated them to have courage to act. Faith drove a whole community of people to act. Not just two parents. To not just have an ideological belief, something that circulated in their minds that they agreed with, but to, to act even when that action might cost them their lives. And the question is, how do we have this kind of courage? How can we as the people of God in our day choose to have that kind of faith? It's simpler than you might think. We were talking about this passage this week in our preaching team. All of our pastors sat down and we were talking about this. And Pastor Jeff kind of reminded us of a story that he'd heard once uh, from someone who'd served in the military. And this service member was telling him that when you are in moments of great danger and, and fear, you don't rise to the courage required for the occasion. You default to the level of your training. The courage that you show is what you've been trained to have. Here's how Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, puts it. He says, in order to be a brave man, you need not leave the ranks or run up to the cannon's mouth out of mere bravado. Soldier of Christ, just keep your place. Do the work appointed by the great Lord, trusting in him and believing in his power to help you. So shall you make your life sublime, however commonplace it may appear to carnalize. The point is that great courage isn't born out of dramatic moments. It's born out of simple faithfulness. Have the courage to do great things for the Lord in the small moments of your life. Don't wait for the big ones. Have the courage to reach out to a neighbor and ask them to dinner, to share the love of Christ with them and to serve them. Have the courage to give your time to serving young kids, serving at neighborhood serve events. Have the courage to live your life openly amongst the people of God and be and be honest about your struggles and your ugly moments and your sin as well of the good things. Second thing that Moses' parents had the courage to do was to trust God. When it was apparent that they couldn't hide Moses anymore, Moses' mother takes him to the Nile, she creates a basket, and she puts Moses in it and sends him down the river. Now I don't know about you, but as a parent, this makes me a little nervous. I don't think I could do that with my three-month-old baby, put him in a, a river full of crocodiles and strong currents and all kinds of different things. That's supernatural trust. That's the courage of faith that says, God's hands are better than mine. Moses' parents knew that if their son was going to live, it wasn't going to be them who saved him, it was God. The only one who can truly protect kids from a chaotic, broken world is God. We must let him convict us that our hands will never be able to care for our kids as much as his. This is so important. Because we, as we live in a world that is truly becoming more chaotic and confusing, and I say that as a parent who thinks all the time about the world that my boys and my daughter are going to live in, I have to realize that God's hands are better than mine that he's more trustworthy than me. And for some of you, it's not about young kids, it's about older kids. It's not a question of what will they face in the world, it's a question of what are they facing in the world right now. Some of you know that you have kids that have walked away from their faith and the burden that puts on you, the fear that you feel is about that. But my encouragement to you is to trust them to God. Pray for them, make space for them, listen to them, provide for them, teach them the scriptures, but trust that the salvation comes from the work of God and His Spirit, and not us. You know that God will never take His eyes off your children. You know that He will never abandon them. He will never be unfaithful to them. The moment of your deepest love for your child, when you consider that, when you think about the deepest love that you have, I need you to understand that that is but a pale shadow of how God feels about them. Where are you trusting in yourself for your kid's salvation, and how can you transfer that trust to God? Where is it your work and your wisdom and your efforts, and where does it need to be God's? Second thing we see in Moses' early life is the choice of faith. Choice of faith. Now, uh, I'm the kind of guy that likes the luxury add-ons on trips when we were flying to Florida this last week Janae was talking with me and I was I was thinking can we get one of those rows with the extra leg room? You know, it's like an extra three hundred dollars to be able to do that And I'm the guy that when you get to the check-in kiosk at the airport And it's giving you all the add-ons that you could get I'm having a debate with Janae Can we get this? Can we maybe spend a few extra hundred dollars on getting this? I'm always chasing those luxury add-ons the thing about Moses that is really interesting is that he was a figure that was born in a, or sent to a palace, had a place of privilege and power, and he chooses not to get the luxury add-ons, but to give them up. There was no one in all of Egypt that had the kind of power and privilege, certainly not a Hebrew that Moses had, and yet he chooses to give that up. Hebrews eleven twenty-four 24 through 25 tells us, By faith Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. How did that choice happen? Where did that come from? We know that from Acts 7 that when Moses made this choice, he was around 40 years old. That's a long time to be in Pharaoh's household. He was nursed by his biological mother, by the grace of God, when he went down that river, his mother was brought in to nurse him. So he was probably in his mother's household a couple of years, but then back to the Pharaoh's daughter. And 40 years later, something happens. He decides to visit his people, but things don't go well. This is what happens. Acts seven tells us, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now lay aside for me, just for a moment, how terribly wrong this all goes. What this moment tells me is that Moses has made a personal decision. Something has happened. Because for 40 years, he didn't care about his people. He didn't visit them, it seems. And that all of a sudden, his people's concerns are now his concerns faith is starting to take a hold of him he's made a choice to move towards the people of god and the mission of god he's why this is important because faith will always move us towards the people of god and the mission of god true faith will lead us to make that choice now we'll struggle with that we'll have sin on the way that we'll need to be worked out we'll need god's grace But that's the story all the time. Abraham needed God's grace and mercy and forgiveness because he chose to try and force the promise of God by sleeping with his servant, Hagar. Jacob needed the redemption and forgiveness of God because he cheated his brother and damaged relationships in his family. Joseph needed redemption and grace because in the early part of his life, he didn't act or speak with humility. But all of these people made a choice in their life to move towards God and his people. Is that the choice that we're making? Despite our brokenness and sin and the complicated circumstances of our life, have we made the choice to move towards God and his people? To turn away from what we've known, from what's comfortable. Secondly, Moses makes the choice to take on a new identity. The way that Hebrews 11 puts it is that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, it's interesting because this, is everything about Moses' life. For 40 years, he was defined by being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. All of the privilege in his life came from that. That's who he was. And when we read in Acts, Stephen, when he's preaching, he tells us about Moses something really interesting. It says, in Acts 7:25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. You catch what's happening there. When Moses struck down that Egyptian, when he went to care for his people, it seems that there was something in Moses that says, it's my power and my privilege. That's what's going to enable me to rescue my people. But it wasn't. Moses thought salvation would come by his hand as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but he had to learn that that title, that identity had to be given up. After Moses flees He travels to Midian Spends another 40 years in Midian And I love This week Pastor Brian said It took 40 years in Midian To get 40 years in Egypt out of him He had to let go of that title When God challenges him eventually To go back to his people To suffer with them He asks them to lead Not from that place of power and privilege As a son of Pharaoh's daughter But to lead them as one of them to be mistreated with them to stand by them and Moses embraced that I wonder do we as the people of God today embrace lowliness the way that Moses did or do we still fight for our titles and positions of power and privilege how many of us might have argued with Moses and say you need to stay in the palace It's your influence as a son of Pharaoh's daughter that we need as the people of God. We need you to be there in the halls of power fighting for us there. And here God is saying, no, that's useless to me. I need you to leave that. You know, sometimes we can do more for the kingdom of God by being present with our neighbors and walking with them in their struggles than we can through politics, position of power, wealth, It's a terrible temptation for us to believe that usefulness to God comes more from positions of power than it does lowliness. We've got to resist that. We need to make this last choice that Moses makes, the choice to pay a cost. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous Christian writer who lived in World War II in Germany, talks about cheap grace and costly grace. And he talks about this idea of following Jesus and discipleship as something that costs. That sometimes we like this cheap grace where we can preach forgiveness without requiring repentance or baptism or church discipline or communion or confession. We don't want any of the things that cost us our comfort and security. But costly grace, true grace, confronts us in love so that when we follow Jesus, we don't hold anything back. We give him everything. True grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. That's what Bonhoeffer said. Moses had to leave behind the fleeting pleasures of the palace and be willing to be mistreated with God's people. His life had to change. And to grow in your faith, you must be willing to choose that same cost. You must be willing to forsake the fleeting pledges of sin. Jesus told people in his day, if you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross and come after me. That cross represented his death. It represented sacrifice. We must be willing to let God interfere with our life and strip away the things that are not good for us that we might not want to let go of. C.S. Lewis called God the transcendental interferer because to follow him means he's going to come into your life and radically reorganize it. And part of choosing faith is choosing to trust that that is better for us, that that is God's kindness and grace in reorganizing the things that we prioritize. That is a cost that is worth paying to surrender our right to use our time how we please our resources how we please even our bodies how we please paul puts it this way in philippians 3 he says whatever gain i had i counted as loss for the sake of christ indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that i may gain christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Paul describes is the confidence of faith. The confidence of faith. All of us need to ask, why would Moses make these choices? Why would he refuse what he refused? Why would the people of Israel have this courage to choose to defy a pharaoh? How can you and I likewise find the faith necessary to let God do that kind of work in us? Hebrews 11:26 tells us tells us that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now I want to pause for a minute because is it something odd that happens in that sentence? It says that he considers the reproach of Christ. Now, how could Moses possibly have known anything about Christ? We are living thousands of years before Christ is born. Why would Moses consider the reproach of Christ at all? I think we get a glimpse of it when we read John 8, where Jesus is debating with some people, some of the Pharisees, and he says to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus makes a really shocking point here, because he is suggesting that the men of faith that had come before him, all of the work of God throughout history had been leading to him. And that in some mysterious sense, Moses, Abraham, Joseph, Jacob, all of them looked forward and had a sense that God's promise was, was worth more than what they had. They understood that something was coming, perhaps even that someone was coming who would be for them everything that they needed, and that that was worth leaving everything else behind. Until we have found our faith in Christ, exclusively Christ, and not the things that we do or the things that we build, leaving Egypt will always seem like madness to us. Why would we pay that price? Why would we make that choice? Why would we give up the fleeting pledges of sin and the wealth and the treasures of the palace? But if, by faith, we would see God as he is, we'd see the beauty of his character, the worth of his goodness, the comfort of his grace, the treasure of being present with him and walking with him and being known by him, then all those fears that we have about losing our earthly treasures melt away. It changes us. It transforms us. And if we as Christians are trying to sell the world religion without Christ, a message of hope without the person of Christ, they will never make that choice because it's madness. But if, on the other hand, we hold up the Christ of the Scriptures, who is of infinite worth and beauty, then we'll begin to see what we see in Matthew 13, when Jesus tells the parable of a man. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That little parable is the confidence of faith. Faith. The problem that we are so often facing is that we don't want to make space for new treasures. We like what we have, we're comfortable, we feel safe, there's a security that comes from what we have. But faith reorganizes our priorities, it redefines our treasures because it wants to make space for something greater, a greater promise. It considers the brooch of Christ, his view, his wisdom, his care is countable as more valuable than all the treasures in all the world. God told Abraham, I am your reward. Remember that he offered Abraham land, he offered him descendants, he offered him a tremendous legacy, but what God says is, those things I'm going to give you, but they are not your reward. I am the reward, Abraham. I think that that's what Moses discovered too. At that burning bush when he wrestled with his faith, he realized the reproach of Christ, the love of God, relationship with him is better than that palace that I had. There's a generation of people asking themselves, is Christ worth it? And what we need to represent, what we need to point them towards is the assurance that yes, he is. Is We must be prepared to answer with confidence, Jesus is worth everything. Not because he makes things easier, not because he's uncomplicated, not because he'll always reward you with treasure and power and influence, because he in himself is more beautiful and worthy than anything else. Let me assure you today, Christ is worth it. If you come to him, you'll find yourself walking a path that will require courage, but he'll supply it. If you come to him, you will find yourself having to make the hard choices, but he'll be present with you, and he will give you grace. If you come to Christ, he will radically reorganize your priorities, and he will redefine your treasures but you will find rest for your souls and a joy that does not run dry. May we, like Moses, by faith, choose to run and turn towards God and his people. And may we forsake the fleeting pleasures of sin and run into the arms of the one who is our very great reward. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the very great reward of your son who loves us and who gave himself for us. Father, we read the stories of men like Moses and wonder how can we have that faith, that courage that would help us to see Christ, that the same things that arose in Moses' heart would arise in ours, that we would refuse the titles of power and privilege, that we would make ourselves low, that we would choose to be with your people, God, so that we might consider your approach of more value, of more worth than all the treasures in the land. Father, do it in us that the world might see that Christ is worth everything. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.